This is the Canna Curio Podcast by Cannabis Media, your source for cannabis and hemp license updates directly from the data vault. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Media newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay informed of future episodes and data releases. Welcome to the Canna Curio Podcast powered by Cannabis Media. We're your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. On today's show, we're joined by Jason Ortiz, board president at the Minority Cannabis Business Association. The MCBA is one of Cannabis Media's trade association partners, and we are so excited to have them on the show. It's going to be a good conversation. As always, let's check in with Ed and see what he's learned for what he has for us this week from the Data Vault. Ed? Hi, Amanda. Um, this week, I've written a blog post on a unique license that we have in Connecticut where backers of a license uh, need to have their own license. And it essentially tracks those that have 5% ownership or more in a given license. We found 65 of these licenses in Connecticut, and they're held by about um, 40 individuals. 37 are from out of state. The interesting thing for me is when we first started this company five years ago, we did a report on Connecticut, which I think you can still find on our website if you dig deep enough. And um, it's curious to see so many of the backers have changed since then. Uh, In the early days, a lot of them were simply limited liability companies where people would sort of hide behind that. And now that's not the case. So it it was interesting to sort of jump back in history and see what's changed, but also to notice you know, how uh, the complexion of those owners has uh, has changed uh, in 2020. Yeah, I'm sure that's uh, the case in a few other markets as well. But uh, good to know, Ed. We'll definitely have to check that out. As mentioned, we're joined by Jason Ortiz, the board president of the Minority Cannabis Business Association. Jason, welcome to the show. Right on. Thank you, Amanda and Ed, for having me. Excited to chat about all the good stuff going on this year. Of course, of course. Well, I, I know that you uh, just uh, stepped into the president position uh, here at MCBA back in December, but I, I wanted to learn, you know, a little bit more about yourself and, and, you know, have you, how long have you been with MCBA and working within the cannabis industry? So I've been with MCBA since we had our first founding board back in 2015, uh, but I got my start in the cannabis industry, I'll say, uh, back when I was 16 years old in high school, and I got my first experience with the criminal justice system, uh, <laughs> being arrested for a simple possession, uh, smoking on the way to school, and you know that really taught me a lot about how cannabis laws affect communities of color and young people and how just outrageous the approach of being so strict on this particular plant uh, really was. And so, you know, I got my start in this movement as someone that was impacted by the war on drugs and I got thrown out of school for a while. It was really detrimental to my my schooling and my growth and so it was just like a very difficult time and so I was lucky enough though I had a strong family we were able to get through it but I learned some very particular terms that sort of changed my life so one was the war on drugs the school to prison pipeline and selective enforcement yeah (laughs) so those three terms really changed how I viewed society how I thought about the law and police Uh, and so you know I was then lucky enough though to go to the University of Connecticut and graduate from UConn And during my time there, I realized that 
there were activists that had been doing lots of work on issues I didn't know about before I got there that changed a very specific law that allowed me to go to college. And that change was the elimination of the federal elimin- the Higher Education Act's federal aid elimination penalty. And so that particular law meant if you got caught with any kind of cannabis or any drug-related offense, arrest, or conviction, you couldn't access financial aid. Oh, wow. But luckily, organizations like Students for Sensible Drug Policy and other activists from Normal uh, changed that law before I applied to go to college. And it was shifted to say you would only lose financial aid if you were already in college when you got caught, which meant everyone that got caught in high school was able to go to college. And I was one of those people. So I always say that while I was negatively impacted by the war on drugs, no doubt, uh, I was also positively impacted by the movement to bring justice for our communities. And so I saw the impacts of bad policy and the impacts of good policy and policy changes uh, directly affecting me. And so once I graduated from UConn, uh, I went out into the movement, did some more work in different issues like ending the death penalty and then uh, eventually came back to the cannabis industry to work with Shalene Title, who is now the cannabis one of the cannabis commissioners of Massachusetts, where she recruited me to MCBA to work on our first model state legalization bill. Wow. I mean, what an experience to have, you know, and especially at such a young, young age to be in that position where, you know, you, you uh, see kind of the, the good and the bad of the, the movement, right? And um, being in that in the middle position and being able to both be negatively impacted and positively impacted. Um, I'm sure, you know, that's really kind of helped you push you into more of the policy side within the, the cannabis industry. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about MCBA and, uh, you know, kind of what, what it is you guys, you guys are focused on? MCBA, the Minority Cannabis Business Association, is a trade association uh, nationwide that seeks to get more people of color in the industry as owners, employees, and consumers. And so we are focusing on all three levels that we look at it uh, within the industry that we want to make sure that the communities most impacted by prohibition, by the war on drugs, those are predominantly communities of color and poor folks, are the ones that benefit from the legalization of cannabis moving forward. Uh, We've seen that that is not the case currently. uh, And it was something that I noticed, you know, when I was younger and an activist, you know, and the war on drugs, I wanted to make sure we did that and we still do. Uh, But the people that ended up owning all of the businesses were giant corporations. Uh, We weren't getting people out of prison. And so we were seeing massive corporations making millions of dollars selling thousands and thousands of pounds of cannabis. But folks would still be going to jail for selling a gram here in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, And so when I was seeing that develop, I knew that was not the movement that I was, you know, putting in my blood, sweat and tears into to see just to get some massive corporations to be rich while everybody else still remains essentially illegal and creating two different legal systems, uh, one for corporations and one for individuals that was replicating the racism I saw with the war on drugs. And so from there, I joined MCBA. We had our first uh, full board meeting with President Jesse Horton, who is a cultivator in Oregon. He's a great dude. He's got the loud cannabis. Definitely check him out. Uh, he's still he's still growing good stuff, and so I'm always impressed when I see his, his stuff come out. And so you know, and and just also shout out if you can, anyone out there, help folks on the West Coast right now. A lot of our cultivators and growers and cannabis industry friends and family are are dealing with some very difficult times. 
Uh, and so, you know, we're thankful for all they've done to help the nation move forward. Uh, and they can use our help a little bit right now. But, you know, so at that time, that was 2015. And really, I came into MCBA with a policy focus that would we decided as a group that instead of arguing against bad laws everywhere, because we saw, for instance, what was happening in Ohio, where it was just a very monopolistic law that was yeah. going to be happening, the one that failed ultimately. Yeah, um, big time. That was a bit of an inspiration for me to get back involved. They're just like, wow, this is the complete opposite direction uh, I was hoping we would go, right? Like Nicholas Shea from 98 Degrees was going to be an owner <laughs> of the industry, oh but God, like people, right. like communities of color weren't going to be. It was just so ridiculous. Uh, and so, you know, so when I got reinvolved, it was it's time for us to start writing our own laws and being able to push our own laws from people that are actually in the industry that are actually growing cannabis and selling cannabis or dealing with criminal justice issues with cannabis, not some corporate boardroom writing what they think is going to be the most profitable. So that in inspired all of us to host the first model uh, policy summit where we had 30 people of color come together in D.C. to talk about what do we want, right? Like the big core root of what MCBA is able to do is bring stakeholders together to the table, really get into the details of what kind of policies we think we want to see, what kind of uh, impacts and outcomes are actually happening out there, and then articulate very clearly what we want, both from the movement and from policy uh, that provides that guiding document for any activist out in the country that wants to fight for more equity in so, their community have that tool. So Jason, drilling into the the different stakeholders that you've got, you know, one thing that intrigued me is, especially as somebody who used to work at a trade association, is you've got a disparate group of stakeholders. You've got cannabis entrepreneurs, workers, and patients, consumers. How do you manage that group? Because I imagine there's going to be cases where there might be a conflict or two uh, among those groups. For sure. And, you know, I take pride in the MCBA is, you know, incredibly diverse in perspective, background, class levels, you know, relationship to capital, relationship to social movements. And so, you know, like myself, I was not someone that came into it as a business person. I'm more of a community organizer by trade. I run political campaigns. And so I deal very specifically with the, the political world, um, but we have folks that are individual owners, cultivators, and also folks that work in major MSOs, while uh, simultaneously we have PhDs. We have two women, PhD women of color PhDs, uh, Dr. Olga Olby and Dr. Rachel Knox, that are you know pioneers in the medical field, <laughs> and we all have opinions on every aspect of what we do. And so, you know, I think we've been able to set a stage that we are really going to get into the details of policy. We're really going to argue it out and we're going to bring experts that are maybe from other industries in mm -hmm. to provide as comprehensive of an approach as possible. And so I think this allows us to include all the voices, right? Instead of what I see happen often in other advocacy or trade associations where policies and statements are crafted to be as narrow as possible so as not to like say the wrong thing or offend the wrong people we say no 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 we're going the opposite we want to make it as inclusive as possible and that may mean that we say this is what we want with this other nuance allowed and these other things to consider and these are the people that made it right like we want to go into both who's speaking in these meetings how are we handling this process and so it is longer and it takes a lot more talking a lot more drafts of every document uh and a lot more people involved 
you know, our first policy summit was 25 people. Our most recent one, which was unfortunately all digital, was 75 different people with 40 plus different organizations and 24 different working groups. So it is a massive amount of information. And as y'all know, at cannabis media, right? Like data is super important and super helpful if you know how to use it. And so what we do is we're collecting an incredible amount of qualitative information on what folks want, right? We ask people, if you were governor, how would you design this element of the cannabis industry? So we take just, I think, personally, a very different approach as far as we want to be comprehensive, we want to be visionary in what we do, uh, and get all the voices at the table rather than be very narrow. And so it just it takes more time. And yes, yeah. there is there is more arguing involved. Uh, but I think we're respectful about it. And we haven't had it devolve into anything really like bad, right? It's just we know everybody has different interests. And then if it really comes down to it, we take a vote on how we're going to move forward. And everyone so far respects the decisions of the group. And I've had, you know, ones that I didn't agree with, but uh, move forward. And, you know, maybe it was the right decision, even if I didn't personally at the time agree. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, in terms of, you know, who you serve, we cover that there, uh, you know, from what I've learned uh, about the MCBA, there's really kind of four parts of your mission of develop, advocate, accelerate and serve. So I like to just probe a little bit on that and, and, you know, to help our listeners get a better understanding, you know, on the develop side, you talk about building that network of cannabis owners as well as ancillary businesses. I'm curious, kind of what's the split of, of members between ancillary and license holders and, and what have been the challenges in, in bringing those people all to the table? So it's a pretty even split as far as our corporate members go. And so for members of MCBA, we have both individual members and corporate members. So anyone who is interested in advancing equity can sign up as an individual member and you can find more information at minoritycannabis.org for our membership. Uh, and that as a person will be able to give you access to some of the informational resources we have, some of our previous webinars and other things just to kind of get you started. Uh, from there, hopefully you extend all that information into starting a business, whether that's a uh, actual plant touching license holding business or something else uh, and move into the corporate ladder. But in the corporate sense of the, the term, you know, I would say the majority of our licenses at the top levels are license holders, right? So they're rather either larger organizations or sole proprietors, someone that owns uh, an actual dispensary, cultivation facility, what uh, or, or otherwise. Um, but it's not that much of a majority, right? We definitely have a significant amount of folks that are in the legal field. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity if you're a cannabis lawyer of any kind uh, to join in the industry now and help folks get licenses. Nice. Um, you know, we also are treasurer. Jessica Velasquez, for instance, is a CPA, and so she is a sort public accountant and so we do have accountants and other sort of ancillary services that are also members uh, and then we have folks that you know they're trying to start a new business whether that's event planning or you know some other kind of government service or advocacy and so there is quite a diversity of who has joined us our top uh corporate members are cresco uh weed maps and parallel just to put sort of the big level on there uh and then once we kind of go smaller from there we have a significant number of law firms uh and then again other folks that are sort of one person freelance that have a really awesome service to give the the industry well it's great that you have the balance of sort of the sole proprietor members as well as the larger companies because that always foments great networking um, I, I did want to find a little bit more about the ad, advocacy work because, you know, what I've seen in this industry is 
it happens really at three levels. There's local, there's state and federal. So I'm curious sort of how you balance that and, and where uh, and where MCBA really puts its uh, its efforts. And I'm going to throw a fourth one on there for you that we'll talk about a little bit later on international policy, because that is becoming increasingly important, especially as we see Mexico making moves to legalize as well. Love it. Uh, but on, on the original uh, U.S. focus level, yeah, you know, there's definitely three different types of governments that govern cannabis policy. And, you know, because cannabis policy and the war on drugs affects so many different parts of our lives, we have to have our own policies to undo all of those different facets, right? And so again, we try to come together to provide model policies for policymakers or advocates to be able to use at all three levels of government. And so for local policymakers, we have a model municipal ordinance. And so this details specifically how you could institute an equity program in your city. So if you're a mayor or a city council person, you can use this ordinance. It's actually technically 10 ordinances that would work together. in your locality, we're happy to work with folks and we have worked with local officials to do things like either introduce the ordinance as is, create resolutions, or other types of policy work. At the state level, we have our state model legalization bill. Now, so this bill would be if you wanted to bring it to your governor or to your state representative and say, at the state level, this is how we should govern cannabis. Some of the things that are different between those two could be something like zoning. Zoning tends to be a local issue. Uh, And so if you are concerned that there's just gonna be no place for you to open up your business, that is something you wanna bring to your city council or your mayor to figure out where is zoned to allow cannabis businesses, right? Your state government may address that, but it's unlikely that they're really the place that's gonna get you what you want. That the state level, however, They will be deciding, for instance, how is taxation going to happen? How are we going to license folks? Are we going to empower the localities to handle all the licensing? Are we going to mandate any social equity programs at the state or local level? Uh, And so it it is different for each state with the amount of power that is transferred either to local or state. And so that's why we create model policies so folks can change whatever their situation is to be a little bit better. Uh, And then lastly, we do do work on the federal level. We have been pushing for access to the Small Business Administration through safe banking is a huge part of what we do. We're also big proponents of the MORE Act, which would completely deschedule marijuana and cannabis and allow for all kinds of opportunities. Uh, And in 2019, we actually spoke to Chairwoman Nidia Velasquez's Small Business Administration Committee uh, in favor of opening up the Small Business Administration to cannabis businesses. And so we have been able to speak directly uh, to the legislators at their own committees. But also, as MCBA, we have a particular pull with legislators of color. Uh, you know, Legislators of color want to hear from their communities in real policy terms, what can we do to solve some of these problems? And so you know, we're lucky to have champions like Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts and Barbara Lee in California, you know, that listen to us and have been very helpful in making sure we move things forward in a way that includes equity at the center of everything that we do. Uh, that's great. And, and you know, sort of tying it together, you know, one of the other elements I saw that's part of what you all offer is this economic empowerment where you're really trying to make sure that minority business owners and professionals get access to the opportunities. So the thing that I'm curious about, especially as you talked about these equity programs is, you know, which states are doing it right and which ones are not doing it right? Because, you know, we we track all these licenses, we see which ones really share 
information. Like Massachusetts, I think, does a very good job of saying which licenses are coming through with which kind of, uh, um, you know, information in terms of, uh, you know, different groups. But, you, you know, you have a unique perspective uh, from where you sit. So, you know, who do you think is doing it right and who could do it better? So everybody can do it better. Uh, I'll just put that out there first. <laughs> you know, and I get this question a lot, but I often say, you know, it's like asking me like, what car is the best? Because uh, there's so many different elements of different pieces of programs that are, are positive or negative. Um, but I will say that when I first joined MCBA in 2015, equity programs didn't exist, right? Like in Oakland specifically, they were working on it. But as far as the conversation in the broader movement, uh, we weren't having this uh, conversation. If you look at our first model build, there's no equity programs in it, right? <laughs> and that, that speaks a lot to like where we were at that time. Um, and so the conversation has just shifted dramatically in favor of equity definitely has to be a part of the conversation. Now, how we go about it and what sort of policies specifics are we seeing that work and don't work there's no state wholesale that has done it i would say correctly right california has the biggest scope right so like the amount so i'll backtrack a little bit here when i analyze a program there's three basic buckets that i'm looking at to see if this is a quality and effective equity program one is criminal justice reform and so that is are we letting folks out of prison how are we changing the penalties for sales and cultivation moving forward are we expunging records and what kind of reentry services are we offering to folks that are returning to society the second one is community investment and that is how are we using tax monies to reinvest into the communities most impacted by over policing uh, and there's lots of different ways that can happen uh, and then lastly ownership and so how are we making sure that the communities most impacted by the war on drugs own the businesses not just work in them but own the businesses that will be operating in their communities or in other wealthy communities so I can look at a bill and say, this has fantastic licensing, but you're not doing anything for criminal justice and actually addressing the harm that was done previously, or vice versa. You can say like, wow, these policies here are really great. We'll reinvest a lot of money in the communities, but our communities will own 0% of any of the businesses that, that open for this, right? And so there's never a silver bullet like, this is great, this is bad. It's always weighing how much of each of those things are we willing to accept in order to get what we do want? Uh, and so what's happening now, though, in places like New York, for instance, the bar is getting higher and higher for legalization. you got to do more for our communities to get our vote, and I think that's a good thing. We see, though, not all legislators are ready for that conversation. Even just like here in Hartford, Connecticut, I've lobbied many times and spoken many times in front of legislature, and I had one of the Republicans ask me, are you – seriously suggesting that we put criminals at the front of the line for licensing and they say yes yes not only at the front of the line i think they should get most of the licenses uh and so you know there's still some cultural conversations that we need to have as far as who will benefit and why are we legalizing yeah. cannabis um, but i will say writ large the conversation has shifted dramatically massachusetts is a good example of creating entire swaths of the supply chain such as delivery focused on equity applicants and economic empowerment applicants. Illinois has set up incredible funds and loans in order to help uh, people of color get started in the industry where they don't have to access predatory lending from private capital. Uh, California has created amazing infrastructure for community investment to be able to 
take that revenue and actually put it back in the communities to build things that have nothing to do with the cannabis industry, right? I mean, we need to build some sidewalks or a new park or something that will beautify the community. So there are pieces all across the country and we have fantastic regulators of color um, that are in various places across the country. Deshita Dawson is in Portland now and Shalene is in Massachusetts. So we have experts of color that can tell us how to do these things. Uh, but I wouldn't say we have the, the, the silver bullet. This state got it 100% right yet. Understood. Well, I'm definitely, you know, learning a lot about, you know, kind of equity programs. You know, my background was previously in staffing, you know, prior to, to joining the team here at Cannabis Media. And, you know, the organization I've worked with kind of dabbled uh, a little bit in, in social equity. But, you know, I do agree that, you know, we don't have a perfect program right now. But it is interesting to see how over the last, you know, two years, right, this has really become a, a conversation, not just for the California market, for example, uh, but also you know a coast to coast and it's something that businesses are prioritizing so i'm really glad that you guys are, are there to to help champion and guide uh the legislators on that um, but I wanted to kind of touch base on uh, the international markets that you guys are working with, Jason. Um, earlier in the show, you know, you mentioned that you you're guys are doing so, some work internationally. Um, and I know that you're scheduled to host an event, a digital webinar uh, for Latin America in December. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So the Asamblea, as we call it, Asamblea Internacional Canabica, is uh, our effort to provide a platform for Latinos and folks that want to operate in Latin America or South America to come together to really focus on the particular opportunities that we see in those areas, but also the context and history of oppression from the United States against those communities, specifically when it comes to the war on drugs. And so, you know, I am personally Puerto Rican. I've grown up, you know, I've been Puerto Rican my whole life. <laughs> and I've actually lived in Puerto Rico many times. Uh, and I'm exploring a, a, a cultivation license in Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico has a more free market than even here in Connecticut oh, uh, to put things in a very weird perspective, right? So I am looking forward to the day uh, when I see my own business come across on my cannabis media emails. I love it. I get those every day. <laughs> I see all these other licenses. I'm looking forward to top floor being one of those people. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I do believe that the economics of cannabis can empower our communities and help grow out of poverty, out of these issues, provide countless jobs and other economic benefits. So I do feel strongly that I want to bring all the opportunities I see happening in the States to Latin America and to Puerto Rico and to South America, uh, especially knowing that the United States government has devastated communities for doing exactly now what the entire state of Colorado is doing 10,000 times yeah. more than Latin America wanted to, right? And so we don't see the feds raiding or having planned Colorado where they're going to come and dump, you know, toxic waste like they did in Plan Colombia, where they were you know, dropping um, defoliant on all of the trees to try to get at the, the coca farmers, yeah. right? And so there, there's a history there that I think the U.S.-centric activism world needs to accept and understand. Um, but also there's just tremendous opportunity for both cannabis entrepreneurs and communities of color in Latin America to benefit from this plant. And so we are creating this event, the Asamblea, December 1st, uh, as the forum for folks to be able to start to meet each other, to hear from regulators in other countries, the problems that they're facing, uh, and see what kind of opportunities exist as well. I don't think most folks know, you know, that you can go and get a license in Puerto Rico right now where you can't in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, but also the big thing that's coming more recently is that Mexico is moving quickly towards legalization, and the United States will be sandwiched between Canada and Mexico, two legal countries, 
and it's going to create a mess yeah. of mm-hmm. policy and what were happening in the Caribbean, right? Like, it's just, like, so much bad that, that will happen if we don't get our act together. And I want to make sure that the Caribbean and Latin America also bring the equity conversation with them, not just these big corporations, yes. right? And, like, what does equity, right, what does reparations, what does repairing the war on drugs mean and the international level, right? Like that is a huge conversation. It's one I don't know if we're ready for, but <laughs> MCBA and myself are going to force us to have this conversation uh, because legalization is coming faster than our ability to understand the damage that we did. Yeah, no, 100%. And again, you know, I really am so glad that an organization like MCBA exists uh, because I, I don't think we're ready to have that conversation, but it is such an important conversation to have, especially when you look at Latin America. I mean, I mean, you know, racial injustice and, uh, you know, the uh, militarization or, you know, kind of living within a police state is so common for those living in Central South, uh, South America, as well as, uh, you know, the the islands. So it is super important that we have that. And the intersection of how, like, specifically our cannabis policy has created an immigration issue is something that I don't think the current president will want to talk about. (laughs) But even those within the cannabis industry, right, like those issues cannot be delinked. What we did in Latin America forced people to leave their homes and come here. And now we're dealing with labor issues here in the States with cannabis companies, oh, yeah. right? So like as the cannabis industry becomes more agricultural, we're going to have to deal with labor issues, right? And so that was one thing, for instance, our model bill wanted to address is to ensure that the cannabis industry acts like a sanctuary industry, that we should be better to immigrants than any other industry there is because of the history of cannabis prohibition on Latin American communities. Yep. No, I agree 100%. And uh, Jason, I mean, this was such a, an animated live conversation. I'm so glad that we had you on the show. I know when we connected back in December, you know, at MJ Biz, uh, we could not have predicted the year that 2020 would be, but uh, so glad that it brought us together and that uh, you joined us on the, the Cannabis Media Trade Association Partnership. Uh, and uh, we just are we're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. And I got to say, like, the access to your database, we've used it a lot over the last year. And I enjoy the the emails. Like, it's been such a great partnership. So, again, thank you all for that, uh, for putting together all this amazing information for us, because we definitely use it and, and appreciate the work you do. Well, thank you so much. All right, Ed, let's take one last look into the data vault and see uh, what you guys have for us in the coming weeks. Oh, absolutely. So we're going back through to bring out the leaderboards for the different license types. So the next one we have on tap is uh, the cultivation licenses to see where they're at. And we're also in the last wave of telephone calling for the information on the point of sale um, and CRM information. And uh, we've been getting a lot of good information in this last uh, batch of calling. So hopefully we'll have a, a good set of numbers that we can be working off of as we pull that report together in the coming weeks. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. All right, everyone. That's our show. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. Stay tuned for more updates from the Data Vault. Thanks for listening to the Canicurio podcast by Cannabis Media. Stay up to date with the latest episodes of the podcast and get alerts on the latest licensing activity in the United States and Canada, as well as exclusive industry insights by signing up for the Cannabis Media Licensing Newsletter at cannabis.media newsletter.